0: We're in a race to make value work.
1: Welcome to the
2: Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency based framework for health value, a time of great need in this last year of the pandemic, Americans saw and celebrated an army of physician heroes. And in doing so, they overlooked an uncomfortable reality. Doctors are neither heroes nor villains. They are humans who share a culture that produces both remarkable successes and abysmal failures. As in Robert Louis Stevenson's gothic novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, It is possible that one person, or in this case, one culture, can be both a virtuous force and equally destructive influence. Until now, the negative aspects of physician culture has remained largely invisible, but like a virus, it affects people even if they can't see it. Physicians' culture wields tremendous influence over the lives of patients, doctors, and the nation as a whole, regardless of whether People acknowledge, or even aware of his existence. If we are to win this race to value, we must fully understand and reform physician culture so it can be more caring.
0: This week we have as our guest Dr. Robert Pearl. We will be discussing his new book, Uncaring, How Physician Culture Kills Doctors and Patients. Uncaring tells the story of a profession that is both triumphant and dangerously flawed, filled with people who aspire to help others, yet who sometimes act coldly, callously, and indifferent toward the pain of others. This book takes you inside the doctor's world, revealing unique insights about their training, their daily practices, and the culture they share. It's a book about people striving for perfection and about the impossibility of achieving it. It sheds light on the norms, rules, and expectations of doctors and shows how culture shapes their thoughts and beliefs. It deciphers their evolving language, symbols, and codes, It highlights what brings doctors together and what isolates them from their colleagues and patients. Finally, the book examines the elements of physician culture that need to be corrected, the ones that should be preserved, and how to accomplish both. Let's
2: now hear from Dr. Robert Pearl as he joins us in this week's Race to Value. Dr. Pearl, welcome to Race to Value. I must say, I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Just read your book, and I I just can't wait to discuss all these important things about physician culture and its impact in this Race to Value.
1: It's an honor and a privilege to be here. I look forward to our conversation. Well, Dr.
2: Pearl, I thought a great way to begin our conversation today would be to discuss this Race to Value. You know, in this movement to value-based care, it seems we often focus too much on health policy to reform our broken system, and yes, of course, we need to look at payment models and how we align incentives to improve outcomes and lower costs, but we also have to address the physician culture, and despite allowing superhuman achievements to happen each and every day, Physician culture, I read in your book, and I can't wait to discuss it with you today, but there's some issues where the culture allows low-value care and equitable outcomes, excessive profiteering, even perpetuation of institutional racism. And in your book, you do a really great job of explaining this dark underbelly, which is responsible in, in many ways for the rising costs and decaying standards of medical care that permeate our nation's healthcare system. And you describe this physician culture that has this duality of human motives and actions and which lead to outcomes that range from life saving to life ending. And there's no better example of this than the coronavirus crisis that we're in. On one hand, you know, we see how it's brought out the best in physicians and saving lives at any cost. But it also shows the significant weaknesses in physician culture. For example, there hasn't been a single doctor or physician association really stepping up to claim responsibility for the problem of avoidable chronic disease, which leads to excessive COVID-19 deaths. So I, I just think about your book. It just does an exceptional job of really outlining the invisible aspects of physician culture that really have a pervasive influence on cost and outcomes. And I can't help but think about that Peter Drucker quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So I wanted to ask you, as we begin our conversation, for those physicians out there that are focused too intently on structural reforms of the healthcare system, how can they also begin to take notice of an equally sizable problem of their own cultural dysfunction, staring at them in the face? Are you confident that physicians will be able to coalesce around the concepts of value and equity and obtain the level of intellectual honesty to be introspective and in addressing their own culture?
1: Let me start by defining what culture is for the listeners it's the combination of the beliefs values the norms that we learn in medical school and residency and we carry with us throughout our entire careers you can think about it as similar to the culture of a nation you know if you're born in germany or you're born in italy you're going to have different beliefs and values and norms than if you were the same individual but placed into a different country early in your life and it's passed down by language by stories but it's invisible I sometimes think about it as the equivalent of going to a tobacco town in North Carolina where people are gathered in a room smoking and they don't even notice the smoke around them but bring someone in there who is not used to it. And they begin to cough without stopping. That's the same thing with this culture. Doctors simply don't see it. And when you look at why does a culture exist, whether for a nation or for a profession, it has multiple purposes. It drives people to higher performance, but it also excuses the way that they inflict harm on people outside that culture. It allows them to see themselves in the best light and to take privilege for themselves. And that's part of why I think for all of us, and I'm a physician, I fix children with cleft lip and cleft palate, we can often see the good side of ourselves, the heroic side, but we miss, as you pointed out, this more problematic one. You know, in COVID-19, the physician culture gave doctors this remarkable courage, commitment, dedication to go in and take care of patients who had a communicable disease that we didn't understand. They did so donned in Garbage bags and salad lids when there were no gowns and N95 masks. You know, we passed tubes into their lungs, knowing full well that as that tube passed through the vocal cords, that the patient would cough spewing virus in our face. And we had the inventiveness to figure out how to put two patients on a single ventilator, something that had never been done, had never even been considered as something that had to get done. And we should be grateful for this culture. But as you've noted, there is this other side that makes us blind to our shortcomings. And I think that we have to be aware of it. One of the points I'm gonna make throughout our conversation today is how the systemic issues and the cultural issues go together and I would say that you can't change one without changing the other. My first book called Mistreated, why we think we're getting good healthcare while usually wrong, looked at these systemic issues and they are true. The reimbursement system doesn't make a lot of sense. The insurance system is completely broken. Uh, the regulations are onerous. The computers that we use slow us down, they're clunky. It is all true. And yet, there is this other part. So, you mentioned a couple of part pieces. You know, you talk about the chronic diseases. 88% of the people who were hospitalized and died from coronavirus had two or more c- chronic diseases. The most common problem was hypertension, high blood pressure. Across the United States, it is controlled 55 to 60% of the time. But we know that some accountable groups, some large medical organizations, are capable of doing it over 90%. You would think that for doctors, this would be an emergency. We know that hypertension is the number one cause of stroke, kidney failure, and a significant contributor to heart disease. And yet, the 55 to 60% is, for the most part, by doctors, accepted and ignored. We don't see the fact that we actually could do something about it. And why is that? Because the culture says that prevention is just, it's just not that important. It's not that it's bad. We do it, we talk about it, but we don't elevate it the same way we do the cardiologist who goes and intervenes to unblock a coronary artery. You know, the data has shown multiple studies that adding 10 physicians in primary care. Into a community has two and a half times greater impact on longevity. And what are we compared to adding ten specialty physicians? And yet, who do we put at the top of the hierarchy in medicine? It's the interventionalist. We just undervalue primary care. And I would even argue that some of the reason why across the United States today primary care physicians are paid less is because we undervalue them. And why do I say that? Because if you look in large multi-specialty medical groups like the Mayo Clinic, like Kaiser Permanente, like Geisinger, primary care physicians are paid more despite the fact that the insurance reimbursement is identical. So that's the part that I believe that exists and we can get into the issues around racism, the issues around burnout, I label the new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients because it impacts both groups. For anyone who's interested, they can pre-order the book. If they do so, they will get some freebies, including a discussion guide, a signed book plate, a reading list, and a chance to read the first chapter before the book is officially published on May 18th, and all the profits from the book Go to Doctors Without Borders, a very worthy charity to which all the profits from my first book were also donated.
0: Dr. Pearl, I commend you for being so courageous in your message today. Your book, Again, Uncaring How Physician Culture Kills Doctors and Patients, is clearly a shot across the bow to your physician colleagues, urging them to step up and address deeply rooted cultural issues. With that, will come great controversy. And your critique of the quote unquote art of medicine is certainly going to create backlash mm-hmm. if you type art of medicine into google there is a litany of articles by physicians who bemoan the loss of artistic expression in clinical care they protest the influx of computerized checklists and algorithmic solutions they call this cookbook medicine with contempt and complain the profession is being overrun by metrics implying that clinical outcome measures are irrelevant statistics time wasters and meaningless expectations that only make their job harder. In your book, you boldly state that had our nation's doctors chosen to follow the science, adhere to the checklist, and embrace the newest information technologies, Americans today would be among the healthiest patients in the world, beneficiaries of a brave new world of clinical science and high tech. Instead, when presented with these 21st century solutions, you assert that physicians do not respond with gratitude or grace. Instead, they go on the attack, rejecting the notion that medical practice could or should be standardized. As medicine does become increasingly more standardized, evidence-based, and algorithmic, how can physicians overcome their fear of losing their position at the top of the socio-professional hierarchy? Whether it's controlling high blood pressure, as you mentioned, managing diabetes, or performing surgery, how can doctors more readily embrace that there are actually better and worse approaches for treating patients?
1: You're making a very important point about why, although we say that medicine is a science, how often we ignore evidence-based recommendations, guidelines, checklists. We can label it any way that we want, but the truth is that we just don't do it. A good example was the study out of the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that one third of the things that we do as physicians, the tests that we do, the procedures that we perform, the medications we give add little or no value. And yet obviously they raise the cost tremendously. So so how did this happen? I mean, this is why I began to research and write the book on caring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients because I was wanting to figure out how do we get to where we were today? Not the systemic issues. And I already researched that and published that in the first book, but how did that happen? And what I came to realize is that culture lasts for a long time. In many ways, as we said, it begins in residency and training and someone who's 50 years old, that's a 20-year-ago horizon. In the 20th century, we didn't understand the etiology of so many diseases that we now have an excellent understanding about. We didn't really understand the details of kidney failure, heart failure. Uh, We knew a little bit more about pulmonary disease, but less so about these other areas that we now have excellent insights into. Now, if you don't have the science, you've got to value something in a culture. What what did we value? We valued intuition. We valued anecdotal experience. We believed that variation was the means to learn, to create innovation, and all these things were true. And by the way, we also didn't have the technology of today. The information that we have today In the 21st century, it's a very different world that we need to understand exists. And to your point, it's not a question of how do we maintain the esteem of the past, but how do we create the esteem of the future? That's gonna be the big shift in mindset. And I believe that actually the coronavirus pandemic will have accelerated that. For I think that coming out of it, our nation is going to face significant economic challenges. They're going to very significantly impact both patient care and physician burnout and satisfaction. So let me tell you a little bit of what I mean when I say that. I think that coming out of this, our country is going to have tremendous economic Problems. The government will have borrowed $8 trillion that it will need to pay back. States, by law, have to have balanced budgets and they're going to face higher rates of unemployment, greater uh, numbers of people wanting to participate or needing to participate in Medicaid. And they're likely to see a lot of their revenue, particularly revenue from small businesses that went out of existence, no longer being there. And the businesses themselves will have burned through their savings. And everyone's going to look for ways to lower costs. And one place they're going to look will certainly be medicine. It's 20% of our GDP. It's a quarter of all governmental spending. It's a major, it's a growing or rapidly growing expense for businesses. And one of the parts to me that is most interesting particularly when it comes to the area of physician burnout, physician dissatisfaction, is we have been talking about this for at least five years, 10 years, complaining about it, pointing out the problems, how patients get worse care when doctors are burned out, saying why things needed to be different. But when I look at the amount of change that's happened, it's almost nothing. And so what I would say to physicians is, what do we think is the problem? Do we believe we're just not yelling loud enough? Do we believe that somehow if we just say the same things again and again and again, that people will suddenly hear us and give us the resources, update the computer systems, eliminate the bureaucratic tasks? I don't think so. I think that we have to understand as physicians, as accountable physicians, that, The problem is that the care we provide is not affordable and it's not world leading. And I don't believe that we as a profession have done that adequately. We feel as though we are entitled to a five or 6% per year increase in revenue and When we see the data that says the United States is last amongst the 12 industrialized nations in life expectancy, childhood mortality, maternal mortality. We don't see that as our fault. We blame the systemic parts around us. And I think that that is what we're going to have to do to step forward if we want to maintain that esteem that we had in the past. I think that day is going to be gone if we don't. And I think progressively as technology comes into place, we can decide we're gonna use it to elevate the profession by providing care that is not only higher quality, but more convenient and easier to access, embracing things like telemedicine, embracing things like artificial intelligence, or I think we're going to get overlooked and left behind. So that's the message that I would give to doctors. And I think coming out of the coronavirus, we have the choice, do we want to lead or do we want to let others set the direction? And my big fear is that we've said for now 50 years, healthcare costs are rising too fast. We must lower them, we should lower them. I believe in the post-coronavirus world, they will get lowered because people won't have the resources to be able to pay. And when they do that, there's only two ways it can happen. One is rationing, and I think in the context of the physician culture, in the context of having taken an oath to first do no harm as physicians, we're going to see, we're going to see that rationing inflicts harm and it will be very problematic for us, even worse than it was before, or we're going to recognize the opportunity to take a single payment, not at the insurance company level, but at the delivery system level. And having taken an insurance, a single payment to take care of a population of patients, we then will need to ask ourselves, how can we provide care that is higher quality, more convenient at lower cost. And we're going to do this by realizing that bringing together groups of doctors for collaborative and cooperative reasons allows care to become better. And this is where I'm optimistic that we're going to see this cultural evolution, because in that context, of having been paid to take care of a population of patients. All of a sudden, prevention becomes more significant than it was in the past. Avoiding chronic, avoiding complications from chronic disease, patient safety. These are things that start to become more valuable. Primary care becomes seen for the excellence that it can contribute to improving the health of people and avoiding disease. You start to eliminate the 30% of procedures that add no value. You start to see telemedicine as a means of bringing care to people's homes, to, to people's lives in ways that they don't have to miss work or school, at a lower cost, not for everything, but instead of the 1% or 2% that we had in the past, maybe 30 or 40%. It starts to shift what we value, what we believe, and the norms we follow. And that's where I'm hopeful, actually, that our country is going to go. I'll add one more thing, though, for the listeners. It's not going to be easy. Making this kind of change is exceedingly difficult. Why is that? Because it's always been easier to do more than to do better. But I'm hopeful that as Physicians see other physicians thriving in this new environment, unlike the situation they may be feeling as pressure comes to ration care in their practices and for their patients. That'll be a little bit like when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile, a accomplishment that people thought was impossible. And within three years, 10 other people did it. I think physicians will go through the five stages of Kubler-Ross. You know, first they'll be in denial that they have to do it. Then they'll get angry when they're forced to do it. Then they're going to bargain to see how little they can do. Then they'll get depressed. But ultimately they'll accept that this new world is here. And I'm optimistic that out of that we will once again restore where our nation really should be. To me, it's very disturbing that our life expectancy is five years below so many other countries. And I think that much of that are, is the systemic issues. They are the systemic issues, but much of that also is the physician culture.
0: Dr. Pearl, I'd like to bring up a related issue about reporting transparency within the physician culture. Many physicians feel threatened by making the data available for all doctors to see. They think all doctors are exceptional and that it's taboo to embarrass a fellow physician by pointing out flaws or, quote, areas for improvement, unquote. For the physicians that are underperforming, they often feel a sense of shame and failure and adamantly resist unblinded performance data for their peers to see. Some doctors say these measures don't adequately quantify excellence or simply feel that American medicine is complicated enough as it is. To that end, Don Berwick has even proposed putting American healthcare on a measurement diet. This resistance to quality measurement in the physician culture is not entirely without merit. HEDIS measurements do feel detached from doctors' daily practices. The information is hard to assemble, and the submission process is overly bureaucratic. In your book, however, you state individual doctors mostly seem to take umbrage with the data simply because it undermines the cultural assumption that all doctors are superb and consistently high performers. At face value, that's absolutely nonsense since comparative metrics do matter. It is impossible for everyone to be a high performer. So can you speak to the challenges of performance reporting and physician culture, especially within value-based care? And when you were the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, responsible for thousands of physicians, how did you confront the truth about clinical outcomes through transparent reporting? Did the climate of transparency that you created impact the physician culture over time?
1: When I became a CEO in Kaiser Permanente responsible for the healthcare of what ultimately was uh, 12 million people and more than 10,000 physicians, uh, what I inherited was a culture left over from the past. The data on performance that was distributed was all blinded. No one knew how anyone else was doing. And everyone assumed that they were doing just fine. And little progress happened. Kaiser Permanente at the time was good. It was a little bit above the 50% mark, but it certainly was not exceptional. And one of the first things I did as the new CEO was to say, from now on, we're going to unblind the information. But you can't just unblind the information out of context. And the context that I wanted to have physicians embrace was that of group excellence. What I knew from having spent some time in business school, what I knew from my reading was that most of the t- most information is rejected when it shows people are not doing well because it's all seen in a comparative way, me against you. And I believe that we had to move towards this idea of group excellence. We'd measure success, not how Dr. A did against Dr. B, but how Kaiser Permanente did against the other 1,000 organizations whose performance was evaluated by the National Committee for Quality Assurance, or whose service was evaluated by J.D. and Associates. So that became the goal. And in that context, First of all, the data is essential, because how do we know, like the Roger Battister example, how do we know how good we could be unless we can see other people's data? And if we see it and want to improve, who should we ask for help? And this is where the unblinding starts to, to happen. We also invested significant resources in a program called Doctors Helping Doctors, where physicians would have time, the best of the physicians would have time each week to spend a half day with others in the office, helping them to figure out better ways to provide care as we introduced the electronic health record to show them the shortcuts to be able to become far more efficient at using these systems to show them how they could harvest the information they needed to provide superior medical care. And as a consequence of that mindset, and let me add one other piece on top of it, which is that incentives do matter. A mistake that people often make is to believe that they can buy higher performance by some incentive program. Incentives change behavior, but the idea of Achieving excellence through dollars rarely works. But what I was able to do is to restructure the incentives so they became at the group level. So that people in large, what we call medical centers, this would be uh, a 1,000 physicians taking care of a population of half a million or a million people, uh, that they would have a common incentive to which they could strive and that overall, the performance of Kaiser Permanente against the other nationally reported organizations would be the benchmark. And we went from middle of the pack to number one on the NCQA ranking, and number one in the regions where we provided the care on the J.D. Power and Associates. And interestingly enough, in that process, we were able to achieve physician satisfaction that was 20% better than physicians in the communities around us and across the states in which we provided the care. And we were able to lower the cost of care 20% below the other organizations providing medical care, again, in the geographies that we serve. This is where all the pieces can come together. You know, it's interesting, a few years ago I was at um, a public health building in Oregon and I looked on the wall and there was a sign It said quality, service and cost and big letters across the top and along the bottom it said pick any two. That's the mindset of the 20th century. We need to have a different mindset that we can achieve all three and that we're going to do it by, again, preventing disease. It's always less expensive to prevent that disease than to have to treat the problems that develop. Avoiding the complications, it's always less expensive to avoid the complications and to treat them when they arise, and to use integrated structure along with technology to accomplish that. I think to a large extent, it's going to take physicians believing that we can achieve these outcomes and going back to where we started, that if we don't have data against which we can measure performance, then we're most likely not going to improve, but that as soon as we start to see what's possible, as soon as I understand the areas of my practice that I can get 20% better in, and you understand the ones that you can get better, 20% better in, and we work together to accomplish that in transparent and open ways, I'm confident that we can have this salutary impact on quality, on service, on cost, and on physician satisfaction.
2: Dr. Pearl I couldn't agree with you more you know physicians need to look to the past and and think about you know how mission driven they once were and then have a, a, a vision for a better tomorrow, but it seems like medical practice today is so far removed from that spirit of yesteryear, I mean though we've had all this scientific and these technological changes that have really advanced diagnostic and therapeutic skills of physicians. They've also turned the doctor's world upside down and it's really challenging their beliefs and norms like never before. I mean, no longer does the doctor's intuition, experience and independent judgment matter most in medicine. Instead, these cultural virtues of the past are being replaced as patients and insurers and administrators are exercising greater authority in how medical care should be delivered. And I know physicians are really struggling out there to cope in this world where everything is changing so quickly except their own culture i mean once a respected profession even a calling medicine for many now seems like it's become just a job for many that like about half of doctors wouldn't even recommend medicine as a career you know to their children so i think this shift is important for us to understand because the attitudes and feelings of doctors bear directly on the way that they treat their patients and since doctors often believe that demonstrating emotion is this unacceptable sign of weakness I mean it seems like they pay a really steep price with their own medical health and these there's national studies out there that are showing that doctors are twice as likely to take their own lives as the general population Uh, you know 15 percent of physicians are struggling with depression you know, 20% or even having suicidal thoughts. And, you know, it's been projected that burnout is affecting over half of the physicians in practice. And a Harvard report even called burnout a public health crisis that urgently demands action. And some physicians are even going as far as to say the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and it, it's an insufficient in describing the pain that they feel when the system prevents doctors from doing what's right thereby forcing them to inflict harm on patients, where physicians themselves experience a form of injury also. So, Dr. Pearl, how should we address this issue of physician burnout and moral injury to ensure that it will not further erode the mental health of doctors and radically undermine patient care in the future? I mean, given that there's too many bureaucratic tasks like filling out insurance forms and getting prior authorizations and that's been identified as a main cause of burnout. What role can value-based care play in improving the situation?
1: There are two parts to addressing this problem. One is going to be the systemic issues and one part is going to be the cultural issues. you're absolutely right. If you survey physicians, what you find is that they will focus on three areas that they believe account for burnout. They're not paid enough. They have too many bureaucratic tasks and the computer systems they're forced to use slow them down and they're clunky. And each of these is correct. However, There's so many exceptions that that these factors can't be the whole cause. Let me give you a couple of examples. If you compare pediatrics to adult medicine, you see that pediatricians are paid less than adult medicine physicians, but they are actually more satisfied. In fact, if you look and ask, what specialty is the most burned out I'll say pre-COVID because I want to speak a little bit about COVID as well because I have tremendous fears about what's going to happen coming out of that one. But if we go back, the highest, especially with the highest rate of burnout was urology. Now urologists earn almost a half a million dollars a year. They earn double what pediatricians earn and yet they're far more dissatisfied So money can't be the whole problem sitting there. In fact, if you compare urology against other surgical specialties, like orthopedics or ophthalmology, what you see is that the burnout rate is almost double in urology than it is in these other surgical specialties. So how can you explain it? Because every surgical specialist has to get the same bureaucratic approval, every one of them uses the same computer systems. And this is where I think the physician culture plays such an important role. Comes down to some work that Sir Michael Marmot did out of the United Kingdom. And he showed that one's relative place in the social hierarchy has massive impact on people's sense of self-worth and actual physical health. And that when status is reduced, what happens is that all of the symptoms that result are identical to burnout. People become dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and fatigued. So what's happened in urology? How does a specialty that's still, by the way, earning as much money as it did before, how has burnout gone from being one of the lowest levels to now the highest in the pre-coronavirus pandemic era? And the answer is that esteem in medicine, in the physician culture, is driven by whether you do the coolest interventions that exist. If I had to figure out how do you have a specialty near the top, you do really interesting, exciting, cool kinds of procedures. That is who is at the top. And urology used to be there. They were there because what they did was robotic prostatectomy. That's almost like a Star Wars kind of modern era operation. And that is why increasingly residents were or medical students were picking it for their residency. And then what happened? We know that at close to a decade ago, the National Preventive Healthcare Services recognized that the PSA, the prostate-specific antigen test, was adding very little value and causing a moderate amount of harm as patients underwent uh, unnecessary biopsies. And it also noted the fact that some of the Robotic prostatectomies were no better than the previous procedures before with patients suffering impotence and urinary incontinence. And we discovered actually that watchful waiting for certain cancers was just as good as undergoing a surgical procedure with the associated complications. And all of a sudden the number of cases started dropping significantly and patients became more educated And they went to centers that were doing more procedures, and a growing number of urologists for whom the esteem came from this operation found themselves no longer able to do it, losing privileges around it, and a significant contributor to the rising burnout that exists. The second part, though, that I want to speak about is not just these factors in the book on caring how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. I go into far greater detail about these cultural factors on the individual, physician, and the relative burnout rates they report. But I also want to look at this whole area of moral injury. And moral injury is a very real factor. As you mentioned, it was seen following uh, various military conflicts and the harm that was inflicted. But with the physician culture prevents us from seeing are our contributions to it. And what I believe is that physicians do experience moral injury, but some of it comes from the systemic ways they are treated, the bureaucratic steps they have to go through, but some of it is what we do ourselves. And although we're not conscious of it, it's like a fine-grained sieve this reality of the harm we're inflicting having taken an oath to first do no harm that we do upon ourselves impact us let me give you a couple of examples we've already talked about the overall cost of health care but let's go down another level let's look at the issue of surprise billing something that was recently by Congress banned, but something that for a long time, not only did physicians do it, but they justified it saying, if we don't do this, we're going to harm medicine. And they overlooked the fact that when hospitals or when uh, financially driven administrative organizations that they hired with their practice went and sued the patients. It was their patients. There was an estimate that one in five patients who came to the emergency department across the United States was being sued by the institution. But who were they suing on behalf of? The doctor. And physicians not only didn't notice it, they defended the practice that was there, or at least the organizations that represented them. How can you not believe that when you inflict financial harm on a patient, that you have an accountability? Or let's look at the issue about racism. You know what we know is that in the coronavirus era, the mortality amongst black patients is three times higher, or black pa- people is three times higher than for white people. And again, ask doctors why? They'll give you all the systemic reasons. We know that people of color tend to work jobs where they have to be there in person rather than being able to do it over Zoom and in a virtual fashion. We know that they often have to take public transportation and that buses and subways were places that germs could be easily exchanged one person to the next. They know that they often lived in circumstances with multi-generations, and disease transmission could happen easier. They can give you all of the reasons why. And yet, what we saw early in the pandemic is that when there was a shortage of testing kits and ED doctors were limited to how many tests they could do per day, on a a proportion basis, they tested white patients twice as often as black patients who came to the ER with exactly the same symptoms and they gave 40% less pain medication following identical procedures. And we know that after mastectomy, that surgeons are less likely to recommend breast reconstruction for black patients. And when they do hysterectomies, they're more likely in premenopausal women to take out the ovaries, something that we know greatly increases heart disease across time and that the mortality for black women undergoing childbirth is three times greater than white women, except when the physician, the attending physician is a black uh, obstetrician, gynecologist. And yet I don't hear very much discussion amongst physicians. I don't see this as the number one item on the agenda of doctors. And if you want to talk about harm, That's what we're talking about. We're talking about racism in testing, and we're talking about unacceptable mortality, whether in the context of COVID-19 or in the context of uh, maternal mortality. But let me go back to one last point on the burnout issue overall, and one of my great concerns at a uh, piece that I'll be publishing in Forbes next week. I am really concerned about what's gonna happen when it comes to burnout from the physician culture amongst critical care and ID physicians, the individuals most responsible for caring for patients with COVID. If you look at the newest survey on burnout, urology is now not number one, it's number four. And number one and number three is critical care and ID. And as I've tried to research this and understand it, What I've come to recognize is the magnitude of the deaths that these physicians are experiencing. In the article in Forbes, I talk about a doctor I spoke with who was telling me that he lost four patients on one day. I spoke to a physician who I think is about the most resilient individual that I know. She's trained in two different specialties, critical care and ED. And she was saying how she can't go to sleep at night and wakes up in the morning before sunrise covered in sweat. When I look at the people caring for these patients with COVID, what I realize is every day losing a patient, something that we in the culture of medicine see as a failure happens. And then I thought back to my own experience. And when I lost patients, not very often, usually individuals with cancer, sometimes the head and neck, sometimes from melanoma. And I realized that in the culture of medicine, we repress and we deny the reality of death. And we have to do that, because the next morning when we get up, we have to go to the operating room, and I have to fix a child with a cleft lip or a cleft palate, or someone else has to take care of an individual and bring them back from the brink of death, and they need us to be at our best. But when you are overwhelmed, not with one or two deaths a year, but dozens every six months or every three months, it's just too much, it overwhelms you. And what we know in the data from combat time period is that the PTSD that develops actually doesn't happen on the battlefield, it happens afterwards. And I am really worried about what's gonna happen to our physicians in critical care and ID, not just during the pandemic, but afterwards. And I'm hoping, and I'm encouraging in this article, that we're going to provide the psychological support that exists, that in a culture that relies on defense mechanisms of of repression and denial, ones that tell physicians as a norm to not show emotions, ones that have as a norm to be able to express empathy but not personal grief. that Those emotions will break apart this fine-grained sieve and allow all of that horrific experience to come raging out. And if we haven't provided the psychological help, I think we're going to see the burnout. And as you point out, potentially even the suicide level rise even more than its current unacceptable points that it's at today.
2: Race to Value listeners, this ends episode one of our great interview with Dr. Robert Pearl. Stay tuned next week for episode two. And as we further discuss his new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, we're going to be covering such topics as primary care, consumerism and the patient experience, institutional racism and the five C's of cultural change. We'll see you next week on the Race to Value.